This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, the bully pulpit. No phrase better describes the power and limitations of the presidency. Doris Kearns Goodwin, author of Team of Rivals, No Ordinary Time, and the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, is now out with the bully pulpit. Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the golden age of journalism. She will join one of her biggest fans, me, in a moment. Then, on this winter weekend, it's the storm of storms in the White House press briefing room, and it's all about access. Believe me, it's one of the most complex questions in Washington today, but it's got a simple answer if all sides could just get along. My old friend Bob McNeely, the official photographer to President Clinton, will be along with me to help sort through this thorny thicket. And finally, it's Chuck Todd, the multi-talented, multitasking NBC newsman, is taking on yet another assignment radio host. He's got a new show, Unscripted, which airs on Saturday mornings right after this program. We'll perform our lead-in duties with Chuck and a bit more at the end of the broadcast. But first, one of the great voices of narrative nonfiction, a woman whose words the likes of Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg will soon put to film, as they have with Lincoln, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. I'm really glad to be with you, Josh. Thank you. You're in Nashville today. What's life like on the road after your long sequestration to do this book? Well, it was really a relief to finally get the book done. It took seven years. So compared to the writing and the pressure of finishing, it's really a delight to be on the road. I know that sounds crazy to say, but it's been fun to meet with people. And talking's easier than writing. (laughs) So I've had a good time. Do you usually go solo? Does Dick go with you? Do you go to nice restaurants? Do you enjoy recommuting with the country? Well, he's been working on his own work right now. He's going through all of his papers, and he wants to write something else again. So he stayed home this time, which means that I go at the end of the night to a bar to have something to eat and to read while I'm ending the day. So it's, it's been a lot of fun, but people have been great everywhere. So this is the end of the road almost. I go to Kansas City and then home. Well, let me commend to your reading, Doris, uh, Let Me Off at the Top by Ron Burgundy. He gives you quite a shout-out, <laughs> I hear. That just came out of nowhere. I mean, I had never, I'd never met Will Farrell or Ron Burgundy, for that matter. But in the opening page of his new memoir, as Ron Burgundy, he talks about a love affair we had while he was writing his memoir, and how important the lovemaking was to the actual <laughs> words in the memoir. So it's really funny. I've been teased endlessly about it. Let me quote a little bit, Doris. I'm sorry, I must do this. That's this is, okay. This is Ron Burgundy. I consulted with my dear friend and lover, Doris Kearns Goodwin, over many breakfasts in bed. Her sharp intellect and sharper teeth found their way into practically every page. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta laugh. I mean, I'll tell you, all my favorite presidents were able to laugh at themselves, and Teddy would laugh at cartoons about himself, so that's the best thing to do with this, and I actually think it's really funny. And and I, uh, another sort of angle of polyoptics is how craftily uh, this film studio is promoting the film, this just being one other thing. I think he came to Boston and did this amazing 35-minute news conference with all the local press and just tore them up. So, Doris, uh, this week, before we go back to uh, the early part of the 20th century, we saw a president uh, use a bully pulpit in front of a 90,000-person crowd in Johannesburg, South Africa. want to listen to a little bit of President Obama earlier this week. It is hard 
to eulogize any man, to capture in words not just the facts and the dates that make a life, but the essential truth of a person, their private joys and sorrows, the quiet moments and unique qualities that illuminate someone's soul. How much harder to do so for a giant of history who moved a nation toward justice and in the process moved billions around the world. Doris, where on the continuum between uh, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft does sit Barack Obama? Well, you know, it's interesting. I gather that address um, for Mr. Mandela got a rousing, huge applause from the audience, which is what usually happens when President Obama is out among the people. I think he's one of those leaders that needs the energy that comes from the crowd in order to spike up his own energy, and his delivery then is usually pretty pitch perfect. It seems harder for him when he's just in the Oval Office in front of a teleprompter reading, which is a a, a more artificial kind of thing to do. Some people master it. I mean, obviously, Ronald Reagan had no trouble doing that. But for Teddy Roosevelt as well, he loved being out among the people. And I sometimes wish that the current president could do that. He would take these train tours, whistle-stop tours, for months on end across the country speaking at village stations and knowing how to reach the people emotionally. And the crowd got back into his heart, too, and he had all these wonderful phrases, you know, the square deal, speak softly and carry a big stick, even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. But he needed that connection. It gave him energy, and, and I sometimes think it, it, they get so insulated in Washington nowadays that they don't have that except on the campaign trail. You know, I worked for so many years for President Clinton, and I saw sort of a very different style of communication at play, one that rarely used a teleprompter, one that did thrive on the crowds, one that sort of leaned in to opportunities whenever they came up. And then, you know, even in his quietest, most uh, sort of non-crowd moments, uh, he could really be so stirring just with the amplification and modulation of his voice. Another eulogy, I just want to hear just a little bit of President Clinton talking about the recently assassinated Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin was my partner and my friend. I admired him and I loved him very much. Because words cannot express my true feelings, let me just say, Shalom. Javier. Goodbye, friend. Doris Kearns Goodwin, author of The Bully Pulpit, The Timber of a President's Voice, from Franklin Roosevelt to John F. Kennedy to Lyndon Johnson, even to uh, Ronald Reagan and now Bill Clinton. Thinking again about Obama, but what about the way that voice comes through a speaker uh, can move people to action or emotion? You're so right. I mean, just listening to that clip from President Clinton, you could feel the sorrow and the emotion in his voice, you know, the way the voice went up and down in a certain sense. And surely with Teddy Roosevelt, I know, having listened to him, you could feel that fiery spirit that he really wanted the people to do something, to motivate them to action, you know, and he just was able to speak in these staccato but very forceful kind of words. And obviously, um, Ronald Reagan knowing how to speak on a teleprompter was able to have his voice as an actor go up and down and i think one of the things that's harder perhaps for president obama is he's such a good writer 
that you want your words to be read as they're written rather than spontaneously. And interestingly, that was true for Abraham Lincoln as well. He didn't like to have to speak without having his text in front of him because he cared about the flow of the words, but he didn't have to do that very often. You know, in those days, your speech would be delivered, and it would be then printed in full in the pamphlets and the newspapers, and people would read the whole thing. Now you give a speech, and they might only be seeing their favorite cable network or their favorite radio station, hearing a part of it, hearing the pundits tearing it down, and then moving on to another subject. So that common conversation that the bully pulpit provided earlier, I think, has been lessened today just by the institution of everybody has a bully pulpit now in a certain sense. Yeah. My my frustration with the way President Obama has projected himself uh, over the course of these last five years is is I, I deal with it every day because you're right. He's such a wonderful writer, but the voice as it comes through seems not to have that much inflection. And so I don't know how deeply he's feeling about any particular thing because it's it's sort of reading a script. And uh, I know how, how much of a crutch a teleprompter can be, but I think as a future Doris Kearns Goodwin might be looking back at President Obama 50 years from now, they might think, boy, we, we really saw a guy who was basically reading off, off glass for most of his presidency. You know, and maybe, you know, just following up what you say, maybe it's worth not having the words be as beautiful and just spoken. Because, again, sometimes when he speaks off the cuff, you, you feel that emotion much more. And, and the emotion is what matters. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt said at one point, I know my Harvard buddies think I speak in too folksy a language and sometimes too homely. You know, he would say things like there's no law to make a coward brave or a fool wise. You know, and it's just a natural thing to say, but people loved it. And it was the way he said it, I think, that reached out to people and using that simple explanatory language. So in some ways, the beautiful writing, I think, of of an Obama may be a deterrent. I remember for LBJ, too, when he spoke off the cuff, he was great. He was so colorful. He was always afraid, however, that he might say something that he shouldn't say. So he clung to the teleprompter so much that they used to call his teleprompter Mother. Mother, he that's go right. Any, he wouldn't go anywhere without Mother. <laughs> mother <laughs> had these big enfolding arms. There was one time when he went somewhere, and they had forgotten to bring Mother. And so it, the pulpit that he was speaking at at a church wasn't the right size. It was too tall, so he had to cut it down so it was the same size as Mother. <laughs> Mother has kept many a White House communications agency military person employed over the decades, I'm, uh, for sure. Now, Doris, there aren't many recordings of uh, President Theodore Roosevelt's voice. We have one. I want to hear a little bit of that. And, oh, great. And that, that great. will bring us back to uh, about a uh, hundred years ago. The American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents pay lip loyalty to this doctrine but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. Tell me about Theodore Roosevelt, the communicator. Well, I think, you know, just listening to that voice, what's so interesting are the echoes, I think, with FDR later. There's a certain kind of real diction that's there. You can hear every word is spoken. But I'm sure if you kept going on with that speech, you know, he, would, he might grow louder and louder as time goes by because he understood that a president had to be a fighter and that he was fighting the robber barons. He was fighting the people who were squeezing out the little companies. He was fighting people who were not doing by the rules of the game but he always understood where the center of the country was. So he would say, I'm not against corporations so long as they deal fairly. I'm not against poor people so long as they take care of their opportunities, but I'm going to go after them if they don't. And so there was that implicit sense of 
joy in what he was doing. And I think that came through in his speeches. He loved being president. He loved every moment of being in the center of the action. In fact, his, his daughter, Alice, said he would like to be the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral and the baby at the baptism. And people felt that sense of joy, I think. But there was always that fight at the same time. He knew how to, he never minced words when he went after somebody. There was one time when somebody said something wrong about him during the 1904 campaign. And instead of just saying it was wrong, he said, that's a falsehood. It's a wicked falsehood. <laughs> it's an unabashedly wicked falsehood. You know, he, he, was, he was able, he said about McKinley once that he, you know, he had the backbone of a chocolate eclair. So he knew how to go about people, but did it with a certain joyousness and fight that the people adored him at the time. So I don't know if during your writing period you ever ventured out to the bookstores of Concord, Massachusetts and saw some of the incredible children's books that have been written about Teddy Roosevelt, about his relationship with Alice, and also about that amazing 1903 trip out to California. But you documented in, in, in intense detail the longest trip a president had ever taken at that point, 14,000 miles. Roosevelt's view is they they want to come out and see the president as much as they would come to see a circus. Can we dive into that trip a little bit and what that meant? No, absolutely. I mean, he knew that he had to educate the country, and that's why he used the phrase bully pulpit. Bully meaning splendid. Pulpit meaning you can reach the country to educate them and mobilize them to pressure the Congress from the outside in, because the old guard was in charge of the Congress, and his old Republican guard, and wanted nothing to do with the legislation he wanted passed for workmen's compensation or for antitrust or food and drug legislation. So he needed to get the country roused up. And it was extraordinary. He had his own training. And it went and stopped at all these village stations. <clears throat> he would wave at the people endlessly after talking to them. There's a funny remark he made at one point. He was waving at a group of people. He would get out of lunch, out of breakfast to wave. He just cared about the connection with them. And he met a rather colder and different reception until somebody told him he was waving at a herd of cows. But it showed how much he was trying to reach and make that connection. He was gone for months on this trip. He talked about conservation. He went to the sequoias. He talked about antitrust. All the main issues, but more importantly, he talked that government had a role to do something about these issues. That was the big hurdle he had to reach. For from the Civil War to the 1900s, people thought government shouldn't be involved in the economic or social life of the country. Laissez-faire was like a religious conviction. So he had to make that educational process work. And through his relationship with the press, which is the most remarkable I think I've ever read about. I mean, he had them in in the morning. He had them in when he was shaving. He had them in at the end of the day when he was signing mail. And he became really close to a lot of press, especially the guys I wrote about, Ida Tarbell and Ray Baker and William Allen White. And yet they retained their integrity because he accepted that they would criticize him. And then he would argue with them, telling them they were not practical, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a really productive relationship. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and uh, what isn't remarked on much now is whether President Obama has either sort of created dinners with the press or he really wants to have a relationship with them, remembering when uh, I would work, go out with the press pool on Saturdays with President Clinton, and for five hours, he and Tom Friedman would just play a bad round of golf and talk about anything. And I think that was reflected in probably the understanding that Friedman had of what was driving this president. I think what what's so good about spending time with the press in those kind of sessions where 
you know you're not supposed to quote the president. I mean, that's what Teddy Roosevelt would do. But it meant that the press understood what his decision-making was, what was going into the process of decision. And then when a finally decision gets made, they have the background in their head. And I, I think the more time you can spend with them, the better. I know it can be a pain in the neck sometimes, um, but it seems to me FDR had two press conferences a week, and that meant that he really got to know the morning and afternoon papers, and he spent a lot of time on it because he knew the press is the channel to the public. In a democracy, it's essential. And whether or not the press is the same kind of press now that provided that kind of relationship or not, and you know that better than I, but I still think for a president, you need the bully pulpit and you need the press. Later on in the program, we're going to get into uh, my conversation with Bob McNeely about press access and how close the press is to the president. But interestingly, on that 1903 trip, Doris, when uh, President Roosevelt decided to go camping with John Muir in Yosemite or visiting Yellowstone, really a White House and a, a Teddy Roosevelt decision to say, boys, I want you to stay here. I'm going up there alone. What about how did that factor into how Roosevelt was either really wanting to commune with nature and also crafting a bit of that uh, image of I can go off into the woods myself? Yeah, I think I think it's both things. I mean, I think he did indeed want to be able to just enjoy the thing that replenished him so much, which was the open spaces with John Muir. But at the same time, I think, you know, he knew that looking like a cowboy, looking like a rancher, looking like a bear hunter was something that people loved about him, you know, that it gave him a multi-dimensional look. And, but I remember the press just waiting back, you know, and then they'd be teasing him about whether he was going to get a bear, if he was going to go hunting. And there's that one famous time, of course, when he didn't get a bear, and he knew they would endlessly tease him when he came out. So the organizers of the trip decided to bring a bear. They stunned the bear, put it next to a tree, and let him shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he decided not to shoot it. And then a cartoonist then wrote a cartoon showing him not shooting a bear. And eventually the little the bear got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was a tiny cub bear. And then Toy Store owner decided to market the teddy bear that very day after the after the bear hunt. So, but that only emboldened his reputation all the more. Amazing story, and uh, and and one that lives with us to this day. Now. Uh, the Bully Pulpit is not a uh, one-character story. It's Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the golden age of journalism. I want to talk both about Taft and the Muckrakers for a minute, beginning with hearing a little bit of Taft's voice. If, and if you think you hadn't heard much of Teddy Roosevelt before, who amongst us has spent <laughs> a lot of time listening to William Howard Taft? Let's listen. How foolish the American people would be to hazard the continuance of this by voting into a power a party whose first declared principle is hostility to the policy of protection upon which our business is conducted. Under a Republican administration, there's nothing to fear from the policy of Congress in respect to the tariff or any other economic policy which will disturb business or frighten capital. A lot of passion in that voice, Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know, it's so exciting to hear these things again. When I think about having spent so long on Lincoln and when they were making the movie Lincoln, all we knew about him, never having heard his voice, of course, was that he had a high-pitched voice because somebody had said that. You know, and now we actually can hear these people, so it's, it's very exciting. The problem for Taft was because he was essentially a judge by temperament and by experience earlier, 
when he gave speeches, he had no sense of shorthand phrases. He wanted to explain everything in full, as you would in a law case. And sometimes his speeches would go on for two hours. There was one moment when he wrote his wife, and he said, I think I was doing pretty good, but at about hour and 45 minutes, <laughs> I saw some people walking out of the hall. And she wrote him back, well, maybe if they were shorter, they would stay. <laughs> You know, the election of 1908, uh, which was the uh, the succession election for uh, Teddy Roosevelt not deciding to go for a third term, was whether his legacy and policies could continue in the form of William Howard Taft. What kind of parallels were there between 1908 and 1988, the idea of George H.W. Bush following from Ronald Reagan? Well, I think it did seem indeed that both men were really desired by the president before them to be the successor. And in Roosevelt's case, probably even more than in Reagan's, he actually ran the campaign for Taft, you know, constantly giving advice, don't play golf, it's a rich, it's a rich man's game, the working class won't like it, fight Williams Jennings Bryan, don't just answer him, smile always, smile always, they love you when you smile, you big beloved fellow, and, and on and on he went, though I, I don't think he gave Taft the the song that was played for him, because it was a rather ominous song. It said, get on a raft with Taft. If you got on a raft with 350-pound Taft, I'm not sure how long you'd stay on it. But he was so happy when he won and was certain that his legacy would be preserved. And then, of course, it all falls apart in only a year. Well, you touch on something so important, Doris, uh, that I think could come back as an as an issue in 2016 if certain people decide to run for president. I want to hear just a clip of a story from Michelle Miller of CBS News about the work with President Taft of Dr. Nathaniel York Davies. He is considered the most portly president in U.S. history. At his heaviest, William Howard Taft was 340 pounds. Providence College historian Deborah Levine says it weighed on his legacy. He's the only person to serve as president, secretary of war, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Most people don't know that, but they do know that he uh, was rumored to have gotten stuck in his bathtub. He sounds like the poster boy for obesity. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Unlike his plus-sized predecessor, Grover Cleveland, Taft was mocked in the press. He himself said, no real gentleman weighs more than 300 pounds. Doris Kearns Goodwin, what was Dr. Davies' role for President Taft? Well, President Taft did indeed try to go on a diet when he was Secretary of War, and he actually did pretty well. I mean, he, it was almost like a Pritikin diet, um, and he lost maybe 70 or 80 pounds. But what happened to him is his weight had a lot to do with his state of happiness. And when he was Secretary of War, he was happy. He lost the weight. Once he started going into the presidential campaign, which made him anxious and nervous, since he never really did want to be president, he started gaining the weight again. By presidency, he was back up to 340. Interestingly, after he left the presidency and eventually became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which made him really happy, he was back to 250, the very weight he'd been at Yale when he started this whole up-and-down process. Somebody did a chart to show the weight, and you can absolutely tie it to his degree of happiness or anxiety. But the interesting thing is, I don't think obesity was a health problem back then. I mean, it was certainly a problem for Taft and did make him fall asleep every now and then, and eventually it hurt her, his heart, although he lived longer than Teddy Roosevelt. But I think, you know, the difference today is we're so aware of it as a national problem that I think that's a good reason why Mr. Christie has tried to do something about the weight with the lap surgery so that he's showing that he's working on it as well, and that's all you can really ask of him. Yeah, so let's hear a little bit of Governor Christie from uh, his recent election night victory in New Jersey. 
We stand here tonight showing that it is possible to put doing your job first, to put working together first, to fight for what you believe in, yet still stand by your principles and get something done for the people who elected you. So Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, the guy is very comfortable in in a way in his own skin, and that's really uh, refreshing com- for any candidate, Democrat or Republican. Uh, he's shown himself to be reelectable, uh, and if you look at the recent legacy of Republican nominee standard bearers, Mitt Romney, John McCain, in the last eight years, here's a person who inflects, uses his voice, uses his passion in a way that is very persuasive to a a swing voter, even perhaps a Democrat, a, a conservative Democratic voter like myself. What prospects do you see for him based on both dealing with the liability, the, that image liability he has, but also the, the clear passion and, and, uh, and comfort that he seems to exhibit on the stump? Oh, I agree with you. I think the comfort and the emotion that he connects to people will be a big thing. So the real challenge for him will be, can he do what Teddy Roosevelt did at the start of his presidency? Can he keep the two wings of the Republican Party together? Because Teddy had a hard job, but he was somehow able to keep that conservative wing and the progressive wing working together, pass the progressive legislation against the conservatives' desire. But once it got passed, it was really popular. And so the Republican Party, with the two wings together, won big in the midterm election in 02. They won huge in 04 and 06. So I think there's something about Mr. Christie looking like a force of nature, which is what Teddy did as well. You know, they said about Teddy that there were two forces of nature in America. Some British guy said Niagara Falls and Theodore Roosevelt. (laughs) And Christie seems to have that energy. He seems to have that joy in politics. That's a really important thing, to really like what you're doing, and I think it shows in your voice. And that's, that's a really, it's just fascinating to hear these voices one after the other. You really can tell a lot from them. Yeah, and what was interesting as you followed Christie on the final days of his campaign was this open embrace of any reporter who wants to follow me around, who wants to spend time on my bus, who wants to ask me questions as I move from spot to spot, I'll take those questions on. And that gets, I guess, to the relationship of these progressive muckraking journalists under uh, 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 who worked at the same time as Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Here, just a clip of the muckrakers. The progressive movement gained momentum and followers as Americans read the work of writers and journalists who exposed corruption in government and business and described the deplorable life of many working class Americans. These writers became popularly known as muckrakers, from a character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress who raked up the mud and muck of the world. Author Upton Sinclair shocked the nation with his graphic description of the filth and appalling working conditions in Chicago meatpacking plants. Doris Kearns Goodwin, even Theodore Roosevelt coined that term muckraker, right? He did. I mean, what what had happened is he was very close to the group that were at McClure's magazine. I mean, Ida Tarbell exposed Standard Oil, which was really important for him because before that, the trusts were sort of an abstract issue. She made it a story showing how John D. Rockefeller had used unfair means to gain his control over the oil industry. Ray Baker showed what the railroad rebates were doing to prevent smaller companies from staying. Lincoln Steffen exposed the corruption in the cities. And Roosevelt needed the stories they told to exemplify what he was arguing for for progressive legislation. At a certain point, however, when McClure's magazine got so popular, other magazines started to follow in their lead, 
and they did less factual stuff. McCoy used to let his people have two years to research, so what they produced was impregnable. They had two years before they even wrote anything, and now suddenly people are writing, you know, exposure things without the facts behind them, character assassination things, and Roosevelt felt it was going too far, so he coined the word muckraker, but he kept telling our guys, the McCoy guys, I don't mean you, I don't mean you, I mean these other guys, but later it became a badge of honor to be an investigative reporter, and these people later in their lives looked back on this period of the time with nostalgia, knowing that they changed the country. It was a pretty heady time to be a journalist. So many of us who uh, subscribed to the New York Times this week have been captivated by the Invisible Child series by Andrea Elliott, which seems to me so much in the tradition of the way you describe the the writers working for McClure. Uh, but having not, I'm sure you've read many of those 10,000, 12,000 word pieces. Do they have that same sort of deeply reported, quoted, fact-checked, journalistic standards that we might think of in today's long-form journalism? Without a question. And what they also had was they even let, you can look at them today, and when people look at Ida Tarbell's work, for example, even though every now and then you might see the bias because her father had been destroyed by John D. Rockefeller, most of the time she's looking at everything from different sides, and, and they, they understood the need that if it, if it weren't fact-based, it wasn't going to be legitimate. But most importantly, McClure would say to them, the story is the thing. You have to tell a story. And they were all really good narrative writers. So the people can absorb a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, rather than something that's fact-based but without that story built into it. Doris Goodwin, uh, this week, finally, the uh, Time magazine comes out with its person of the year. They go with Pope Francis. The runner-up is Edward Snowden, who might have impacted the way the United States is headed more than anyone else. I want to hear a little bit of how we first came to know Snowden through those interviews, uh, courtesy of Glenn Greenwald, earlier in the year, and then get you to comment. What are some of the positions that you held previously within the intelligence community? Uh, I've been uh, a systems engineer, systems administrator, uh, senior advisor uh, for the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, solutions consultant, and a uh, telecommunications information systems officer. Doris, Theodore Roosevelt seemed to applaud what Ida Tarbell and Upton Sinclair did to expose problems in the United States. How would he have reacted to the leaks at the National Security Agency and what that has exposed? No, it's it's a really good question. And to be honest, I'm not sure I know the answer because it's so different from what he was confronted with. And um, except I know that even with Lincoln Steffens, he gave him at one point a card and said, I, you can, because Stephens finally said to him, I want to look at corruption in the federal government, not just city and state. And Roosevelt said, that's all right with me. I need to know, even in my own administration, where the corruption is. And he gave him a card that said, Lincoln Stephens has this card. I give him permission to ask you, as long as it's nothing that violates security. So um, I think he would have if he found out that something was being done within his administration that he had control over changing, then I think he would have looked at it fine. If it is something that, you know, violated national security, that would have been a different matter. But that's what's so different today in terms of the percentage of, of national security versus domestic politics time that a president spends. Yeah. Amazing year in all, a year that uh, for uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, resulted in the publication of her latest work, um, The Bully Pulpit, after seven years of during the writing. 
also for my fellow Bostonian a great year at Fenway Park. <laughs> and I'll just it was uh, the best. <laughs> I'll just end with uh, with one little sound clip uh, from Game Six uh, versus the Detroit Tigers. Joaquin Benoit on the mound and our favorite guy up at plate. Now they've got Ortiz, who's never homered against Benoit in his career. Bases loaded, two out. Hard hit into right, back at the wall, tie game. So, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, were you able to peel yourself away from writing to watch that night? Oh, I, I went to every single playoff game and every World Series game. No, the one thing I did all summer when I was so late in delivering the book, I didn't read the newspapers, I didn't know what was going on, but I read the box scores of the sports pages the next day because they made me so happy all summer long. And that game, to be in our hometown and see them win, you know, something nobody alive had done since the last two World Series before 1918 or after had been away, it was glorious. And maybe something about the leadership of the team after the marathon bombings, yeah. Know something about how it chilled together under John Farrell and Big Poppy, who is just a miracle man. I was so happy. We we were there until like two in the morning because we couldn't get out of the parking lot, and I didn't. Nobody minded. We were singing and and laughing. It was terrific. There's something about a baseball team or any football team that combines a community and makes you feel part of the whole. And I think that's why I've loved baseball all my life. Many challenging issues this year, Doris, but a lot to be thankful for and a lot to. Uh to take your mind away from uh, what's coming if you want to go down to your local bookstore in Nashville or anywhere else and pick up The Bully Pulpit. Doris Kearns Goodwin, one of my favorite writers ever. Thanks for joining me on Polyopolis. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Take care. So now moving forward about a century and a couple years, we come to this current conundrum of media access, specifically photojournalist access to the events that happen in and around President Obama's orbit every day, whether in the White House, in the West Wing or on the road. As I promised at the top of the show, we're going to be joined by a very good friend, Bob McNeely, the official photographer for President Clinton, who I logged hundreds of thousands of miles with over the years to trips very much like President Obama's trip to South Africa this week uh, and get into this a little bit. And uh, I do think we have on the line from upstate New York, Bob McNeely. Welcome to Polyoptics. Yeah, thank you, Josh. I'm glad to be here. So such a long time since we we worked. Very different era in terms of technology and photographic distribution. Well, that's a big part of the story. Uh, This whole thing evolved out of the technology as much as out of a short-sighted vision on part of the White House and the people that are there. I mean, both, both things are a big part of this story. Okay, so let's, let's set it up, Bob, with a little bit from a White House briefing Press Secretary Jay Carney earlier this week really getting peppered on this issue, and it's been, it's been coming to a crescendo, and I've seen it and you've seen it, and I want to really get into it after this. And we hold on, John. And so have we, but just not, do you think that, hey, hey, guys, if you're telling me that on every flight that President Bush took and every flight that President Clinton took, oh, and no, hold on, that, but, but what I'm saying is, guys, what I'm saying is we hear you, and I want to address this, and I want to work with photographers to uh, 
improve that situation and see if we can be responsive to your concerns. All I'm noting in answer to Michael's question is that this is part of a, a, a bigger transformation that's happening out there that's driven by the ability of everyone to post anything on the internet free of charge so that you don't have to buy that newspaper or subscribe to that wire service to see that photograph. And that's true, Ann. It's true. Bob McNeely, official White House photographer to President Clinton. Take me back and tell me what's going on here from <laughs> like what the White House official photographer's office does and w what it was designed to do and what it's doing now and why everyone's so upset. Well, yeah, it's it's a, it's and as you said, there's there's a it goes back a ways, and um, the White House photo office uh, was there in the beginning as a ceremonial function. I mean, the photographers were with the military; they were called up to do handshakes in the Oval Office. I mean, basically, they had um, nothing else to do, uh, no documentary or or press release or any kind of function, and the White House. Uh, journalism, uh, the photo photojournalists, photographers, the newspapers, the magazines, they did the basic uh, coverage which provided the history of the White House. Um, the military photographers were good, but they, they, as I said, they really had a hard time getting any kind of access to anything other than handshakes, even if they wanted to. Um, so Lyndon Johnson, who was had an ego, as we all know, and, and thought that photography would be a big part of uh, getting out the message of his administration, hired the first civilian photographer, a man named Yoshi Okamoto, who he had met uh, from the Interior Department. He set a standard. He made all these incredible pictures, but they were historical pictures. I am not sure it, during the years of Johnson's presidency if Okamoto made any releases, but this started a civilian in that job, someone who was under control, obviously, of the White House, but had a different set of concerns and a different responsibility than the military guys. But the thing to remember in all of this, this was an era of film. Um, the photographers for the newspapers could get the, make their picture, get it out to their office, get it printed, and get it on the newswires much, much quicker than the White House could get them a release anyway, even if they wanted to do it. So, and as I said, this story is, is, as Jay Carney tried to justify it completely from a technological standpoint, that's only half the story. This White House has, from the beginning, not had any access to it to any degree like been the historical standard. I mean, that's a main problem right there. Why is that? Um, I think it evolved during their campaign. Now, you and I are both total political junkies. I mean, we have found, we, even when we're not absolutely involved in the campaign every day, we know what's going on. So I followed Obama's campaign in 2008 a little, and they did a very good job of maintaining a flicker feed of his pictures all the time during the day. And what's interesting, I got my start in politics in the McGovern campaign in 1972 because they started a photo operation because McGovern was seen as such a long shot and so far outside. They, we set up an operation to provide to the wires, AP, UPI, and everyone back then, pictures of McGovern campaigning because, and they would take them, but they wouldn't send somebody out. They didn't have enough photographers. So Go ahead to 2008. The Obama campaign had a flicker feed. 
the ph photographs weren't very good. They had a, a photographer on their campaign who really wasn't a photographer. I mean, he has not continued in that that job. He didn't come into the White House as a photographer. But they got pictures out, and they had this one young man who was close to Obama and following him around. They also did video. Yeah, Arun Chaudhry. Exactly. The video guy was much more prominent than the, the still guy and continued into the White House doing that. Yeah. I, I don't believe he's still there. I no, think. he's left, but he created White House Week, which is basically a, a long uh, documentary of what goes on in the White House every week, which uh, Ron Fournier would label as propaganda lickety-split. Oh, he's totally correct. Well, it's funny because Johnson did the same thing with the military guys. Johnson produced a half-hour uh, film documentary on Lyndon's presidency every month. They they did a they did a documentary with voiceover narration of uh, you know beginning, a middle and end. So it's not totally new, but obviously with the ability to deliver it is what's changed. So anyway, so they did this in the campaign. Uh Obama got very used to it. I'm not sure. I covered Obama just a little bit in 2008 at a couple of events. I didn't try to get any kind of um, behind-the-scenes access. But there were photographers that had a lot of access. Callie Shell, who we yeah. both know from the White House for Time magazine. Charles Omani Alma from yep. Newsweek. Both had access to Obama to a large degree behind the scenes, and he was comfortable with them. But... Once they moved into the White House, a decision seemed to have been made and seconded by the White House photographer, who I think is very comfortable with this situation, yep. to, own, to restrict, well, not to restrict as much as to just put everything out, to continue this Flickr feed, to continue a huge, on the White House website, of course, it's now uh, you can access this material through the whitehouse.gov. Uh, as as well as the Flickr feed, as well as on Facebook. I mean, I'm uh, on Facebook with with uh, Pete Souza, who's the White House photographer, and within hours at the end of this trip to South Africa, he had a slideshow up on Facebook of his images, which I thought I thought this was their last chance to avert this story blowing up out of, which came true with the Jay Carney briefing. They could have on this plane, which we both know. Planes to funerals and memorial services, especially South Africa, they're basically, you're spending 36 hours on an airplane yep. for four hours on the ground. The story's on the plane. They, they had Steve Crowley from the New York Times. They had the One AP, of the best, right? Uh, one of the best. Uh, he actually posted a picture. George W. Bush went back to the press section looking for Crowley, you know, and, and posed for pictures with Crowley. Spent an hour in the press section, uh, talking to everybody. But they had an opportunity on this flight to head this story off. And because of their long-standing operating system, they didn't see it. And by not doing it, it really blew up on them. I mean, because of so much stuff out there and so many pictures. I mean, from George W. Bush showing um, an iPad uh, images of his paintings to... Um, uh, the former Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton, right. being on the plane and interacting with everybody. At different times on these hundreds of <laughs> this long flight, they could have brought these guys up and really started down the path to changing this dynamic. And they didn't do it, 
And it's, uh, I don't know if they will do it. I, I just don't know if at this late stage, over, you know, five years into this administration, if the president is willing to do it and if Pete is willing to be the facilitator, which he would have to be to make this happen. Right. So, Bob, let me try something out on you, because the time that we worked together, I was sort of the facilitator. I tried to look at people like Diana Walker and Dirk Halstead and uh, and Paul Hosefros and say, you know, if you could just be with McNeely or Sharon uh, or Barbara for a few minutes as a, the, in respectful fly-on-the-wall observer of what's going on, I'd love to have you have some access that Bob has. And so how, is it a decent compromise, Bob McNeely, to say, you guys figure out how to pool yourselves, and then Pete will bring you in for the top 90 seconds of as many meetings as possible. But no one else, we're not going to turn this into a news conference or the pool to ask questions or to turn a dignified moment like a meeting with Malala from Afghanistan into a question about the Affordable Care Act website. Is that an okay compromise to do more of these single pool fly-on-the-wall things? I think it's a, it's a, it's a good compromise, whether or not it's achievable at this point is hard to say. I mean, as, and once again, as you and I both know, when a, a um, contentious point reaches where it is now, boy, it's hard, it's hard to get to. They, they, they needed to start some kind of a compromise a little earlier. And I think the White House, the White House is feeling very, like, surprised that this has blown up to this degree after five years. This could have been handled. This that compromise you you just put forth is perfect. It it would work. It's exactly how you operated. We cooperated with them. We loved having them with us. I mean, it validated the pictures we took. One of the things that, that I pointed out in some dialogue with different people on Facebook and in phone calls with other White House photographers and other photojournalists, this is affecting the histo- Pete's the historical record. Pete Souza points out every time he's interviewed or talks, he's there to do the historical record. Well, this historical record is being labeled now the historical propaganda record. Right. And it's, it's a real threat to him. And I, I have tried to point this out. I had some conversations very early on, 2008, uh, 2009, before the inaugural with Pete, um, but it sort of fell on deaf ears, and different people have, have worked with a very close relationship with the president. Um, David Valdez, George Herbert Walker Bush's photographer, every time I, we do lectures together, he, he points out he was one of the family. Um, Kennerly, there's always a statement, you know, Kennerly was like a son to Gerald right. Ford. I, I never wanted that relationship. I felt that that... Uh, has a, puts a, a, a shadow over the historical record. Not that you're, you're not that you're still a photojournalist. Your pictures are being done. You do have to satisfy what's being done for the White House. You are a partisan working for this person, and you have to have loyalty to them uh, as well. But you also have to have loyalty to the historical record, the loyalty to the American taxpayer. That's been part of this story as well. They pay the salaries of these White House photographers and have have sort of are paying for this uh, picture agency, this 
as, as I won't use the word propaganda, but for this picture agency that's putting out all of these photos and are, are supplementing a media uh, that that's their job that, yeah. to, to photograph and keep a record of this. And on the other hand, you know, Pete Souza has a hundred thousand followers on Twitter who want to who who want to see this stuff. They they want to see his Facebook page. I do think that we are uh, helped by seeing these McNeely esque Souza esque photos of real meetings in in action. I don't consider them propaganda, but but they won't be uh, accepted by the press unless we do something like have a have a pool system where. Other eyes are on it, Doug Mills and Charlie Darapak, and they get to see things too. And I'd love to see that happen. But Bob McNeely, this is a debate which I hope we we will continue with you and maybe Pete on polyoptics in the weeks ahead. And maybe you and I can speak about it at more length uh, over some skiing at Wyndham later on in the winter. <laughs> well, I'd love to. I'd love to. We've just barely scratched it, and it's, it's an ongoing story. It's interesting to see it. It just won't go away. So hopefully something will change. Bob McNeely will always have belly bunion. <laughs> All right, Josh. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye. People of the United States. This is POTUS. Chuck Todd, chief White House correspondent and political director of NBC News and host of the Daily Rundown on MSNBC, and now the host of the brand spanking new Unscripted right here on SiriusXM POTUS, Channel 124. Welcome, Chuck, to your humble lead-in here on Polyoptics. I, I love it. I love it. I, I, my, my, my new favorite colleague. I saw John Huntsman last week, so now I get, you know, he's, the, he's on the back end of my show, and now you know, you're on the front end. We're going to make it a regular weekly date, my friend. Absolutely. So how does it feel there, sitting in a warm studio, no makeup, no lights, no time cue? Just you, and you can riff for an hour if you want. Well, time cues. I think uh, I think uh, the, my producers here wish I would stick to time a little bit, keep keep work. But it's, I tell you, it's the idea of just talking and talking and talking with the guests and just sort of riffing along. That's the best part. There's no worry about a, hitting a commercial break on time and all of that business. I have to say, I kind of like it. So, how does your family deal with you taking on yet another media responsibility? As long as I get my wife in here to talk about Florida State football at some point, since my whole point is to try to have a little fun here with sports and politics, I'm going to be forgiven for everything. And, and so as, as, as long as she gets to talk about how great those horrible Florida State Seminoles are, then, uh, you know, I'll be all right. Well, let's talk a little football, Chuck. This week, big news from Washington, D.C. Mike Shanahan decides Robert Griffin III has had it for the season. What's going on at FedEx Field in the nation's capital with that decision? What a great soap opera, huh? I mean, it's it's uh, better than the palace intrigue that sometimes takes place in the West Wing or Capitol. I, I think the fact is we obviously the, we've all known. You, you know, it's funny, and you know this in politics, and and I think we're watching it just as observers of sports fans. You know, you know when there's a bad relationship, and there's always you know the politicians always say, no, 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 we really get along. And the best example I, I always use is President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu. They both always talk about how close they are and how, and it's true. You know, the United States and Israel are very close, but the two of them, they just they come from you know one is from Mars, one is from Venus. You know, they just don't see eye to eye uh, on some things, uh, and it, and it you can tell by the body language. And boy, that's what it feels like watching Shanahan and, and RG3. They just they just come from uh, different planets. 
Talk about polyoptics, Chuck. Those images of FedEx Field after halftime and all those empty red seats, Dan Snyder must be going nuts. He's got to be. He's got to be. I'm just. It's got to be simply a financial decision that Shanahan's not gone. There's the only. It's the only explanation because he's got to do something for the fans, and the fans, you know. And there's too much. He's, you know, he can't. He made his decision when he spent all that money and draft picks on RG3. He made that decision. So now there's only one thing he can do for the fans, uh, and that's dumb Shanahan, but it's a $7 million. Uh, it looks like that's the problem here is that how much money he'd have to swallow, and he's not ready to do it. Another game of political football this week, Chuck Todd. It's the Paul Ryan-Patty Murray deal with the Tea Party and Heritage Action up in arms. What does this say about where GOP leadership is headed? Well, I think it's interesting in that the leadership of the party, um, both parties, realize, I mean, what was amazing is how little either side attempted to use maybe whatever little leverage they thought they could have had, right? You know, Ryan, I think both parties entered this, you know, I think Harry Reid and John Boehner, the advice to Patty Murray and um, and Paul Ryan seemed to be, look, you know, if you're Harry Reid, we got health care, it's killing us. We probably can't afford a showdown here. We can't look like we're playing too much politics. And I think same thing to Paul Ryan. You know what? We can't afford another shutdown. We've already used up our leverage. You know, both of them are, are we're dealing in an environment where neither of their respective political parties are well thought of right now with the public. And any little slip could make it uh, make it a crisis moment. So I think that's why we got this incredibly small deal that does nothing but basically handle the status quo. I mean, if you really care about fiscal issues, this deal doesn't really touch it. It just simply doesn't upend the apple cart. Uh, but I think it tells you the concern, that, that the reality that both the leaders of the party realize. Now, obviously, it's uh, oh, picking the scab at what we've all known has been there for years, for the last three years, which is this fight inside the Republican Party between the, the conservative and the Tea Party wing and the establishment. I've been keeping up, Chuck, with my live stream of the press secretary's daily briefing, and Jay Carney really got an earful from you and your colleagues in the front row of the James Brady briefing room about press access issues and the Pete Souza issue. It's really coming to a boil. What's the latest on that, in your opinion? Well, I, look, and, and people have been asking about what, and, and and you you have a you'll have an you have an interesting perspective on this because you were on the other side and understood image control as far as the White House is concerned. But this is, uh, I think, I can tell you where I'm coming. I'm just going to tell you where I'm coming from. Uh, and obviously, this is a fight about um, you know Pete Souza, the official White House photographer, versus the paid photographers for news organizations, including you know we uh, we actually have one. But so does the, but this is really Associated Press, New York Times. You know, most of the news photos that you see, they are done by these these large news entities, and they're now competing essentially with the White House because the White House, thanks to technology, can take a take an official White House photograph and send it to the world. And uh, you know, obviously, they get uh, Pete Souza gets the type of access that the press never gets, and it's sort of these this line about there's there seems to be things that you could argue that the press should have some access to, even if it's visual access only, that they've shut the press out of, and that's been a frustration. The way I part of my sort of uh, belief in, in in engaging in this fight with the White House is it's about precedent. I know we're in a new technology and we're in a new world where the access, where the White House has access to instant vote, you know, has some things that you wish you had had during the Clinton years, you know, being able to release a photo in real time and, and, and being able to involve the White House visually into the news cycle, thanks to Twitter and thanks to the internet. But whatever precedent we're setting now in this new world, 
is going to be used by President Hillary Clinton or President Scott Walker or President Chris Christie or President Joe Biden. And and what I've learned and what we all know, and you know it too, whatever precedent is set by the previous administration, the next president's administration uses that precedent to their advantage and then sets even more. So it's about, frankly, it's the old, it's a slippery slope argument. And I think we have to stand our ground now because it's only going to get harder and access is only going to become, we're only going to be competing more and more with a White House press office that is going, that is essentially its own news organization. But how much ground are you going to stand on, Chuck? I've been back and forth with you on this, but here's a compromise. Let's say Jay Carney gets creative, and this would be my solution to the issue. You know, I always study the behind-the-scenes specials that the great photojournalists like Diana Walker and Brooks Craft have had in the past. They're gorgeous spreads shot by independents, and that if you were to say, okay, on a pooling basis, it'll be Doug Mills one day, Charlie Darapak the next day, and so on, you basically stick with Pete like glue, be respectful around the fringe, act like a fly on the wall in some of those presidential meetings. Would the White House correspondent of NBC News or Mark Knoller of CBS News or the White House Correspondents Association be satisfied that photographers have been taken care of, but the other media haven't been? Well, look, that's a that's a fair issue. Um, and and I'm not saying, look, I think we've we've got access. You know, as I said to one White House aide, they said, what is this about? Is this really about uh, the White House photographers, or is this five years of pent-up frustration in access issues? And I and it and is for some it may be a little bit of both. Some of this has to do with you know the the we know the photographers are under some pressure and competitive pressures and financial pressures. A lot of these guys they're freelancers. They don't have they don't necessarily they work full time for these news organizations, but to make their living, it's their photographs. So there's part of that too. You're sort of standing yep. up for your colleagues that. They have their. This is this is their living. They make a living uh, on on this uh, on on uh, owning these photographs and distributing them. So yes, there's there's a piece of that setting up your colleagues. But to me, it's sort of it's it's a principle thing. And again, you know, we sort of have all agreed upon the lines, right? Private moments are private moments, and you know, we're not asking for uh, photo sprays of the president when you know he's out playing golf or when he's having private time when he's when he's being a the closest thing you can be to a private citizen or citizen Barack Obama or parent Barack Obama. The issue is when he's having, you know, lunch or meetings with world leaders or he's on, you know, there was no excuse for the White House not to allow a photo spray of a very historic, unique event, which is a former first family and a current first family flying together in Air Force One to honor one of the giants of the 20th century. You're telling me you couldn't have found five minutes right. during t- some 40 hours of flying, <laughs> right, to bring in the stills, frankly, to bring in the TV cameras for something. And, you know, and and they knew it was a good story. So they released it on their own. And, of course, you know, what's, you know, what, what's our beef? You know, they're going to make sure, you know, is, is is Pete Souza going to release a photo? Is he going to, is Jay Carney going to allow a photo to be released by Pete Souza that shows, you know, Hillary Clinton grimacing or in a bad position or whatever. You know, so that's, you know, you're dealing, it's again, it's a visual press release. We w- You wouldn't accept it. Now, let me tell you something here that I know that we're hypocritical on, and that is not just my news organizations, but all the national news organizations use these photos. You know, one yep. thing we could all do is band together, right, and not use these White House releases, in, you know, under unless under the circumstances where 
it would have been inappropriate for press to have been there. Like, uh, you know, I'll give them the the situation room during the bin Laden raid. You know, there's never press wouldn't have been there. So that's a photo that to me is legitimate or, you know, maybe a a fun first family thing that they decided to release. Okay. Um, But we we run these photos, you know, and I have these arguments with my with my bosses up in New York. And I say, you know, this is. This is I understand, and this it's it's quote unquote out there. But of course, if all the major news organizations made that decision, then the little news organizations wouldn't, and they don't. So, you know that this is how we've gotten into this position where, essentially, we we don't really have a lot of ground to stand on other than basically appealing to the uh, First Amendment freedom of the press aspect uh, to the White House press uh, office. Perhaps back to the future, Chuck. Another announcement this week that my old boss, John Podesta would be returning to the West Wing for a year to assist President Obama. Does that portend better relations, perhaps, with those on Capitol Hill or in the press room? I don't think it's about the press room. I think this is about the executive branch. I mean, I think a couple a couple things. I mean, John Podesta and Dennis McDonough, and I've been saying this, is that this this should not be seen as a negative on Dennis McDonough. This is not John Podesta being hired to be the chief of staff in waiting or the shadow chief of staff. Dennis and, 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 and John are very close. I see Podesta there every week as it was, and it was there to see Dennis and be an advisor to Dennis, be a mentor to Dennis. Um, so it appears to me what what when you look, and you know your old boss better than I do when it comes to his expertise, but he ran a White House when there was not a Congress that was going to be cooperative. So it was about finding ways to use the executive branch, executive actions, cabinet agencies to to push an agenda, to get the, get stuff done. Uh, and so that is that was what Podesta did very effectively, I think, in the last couple of years of the Clintons of Clinton's second term. And that's something that that uh, this president needs to start planning on more uh, because it's, you know, even if he had a Democratic Congress uh, to deal with, you know, you start when you start getting into that sixth and seventh year of your presidency, you know, there's only so much juice you have left on Capitol Hill in good times, let alone uh, the precarious political times this president's in right now. Chuck, tomorrow, a big showdown, my New England Patriots against your Miami Dolphins. What do you see for that game and for the Pats and Finns for the rest of the season? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll profess to being, I'm never, it's my hometown. I'm a bigger Miami Hurricane fan than Dolphin fan. I, I was actually raised a Packer fan. But, you know, as my son tries to understand why I'm not a bigger Dolphins fan. But that said, this one feels like a pretty even match. And my gut is the Dolphins are going to pull an upset here. No Gronk. No Gronk. No Gronk, and boy, that's a different offense. When you and, and you know what no-name running back do you have this week? You know, you cough up the football in the first quarter, and you get yourself benched by Belichick. Yeah, God love him. I think it's a. I think it's still a remarkable thing that the Patriots' offense is doing. Uh, I don't know how many. You know, someday, you know, Tom Tom Brady's ability to win with. Uh, a bunch of uh, has-beens and never-will-bees as his receiving core uh, and the running backs that, you know, he's never done it with stars. you got to say this. You know, Peyton Manning's been surrounded by Hall of Famers off and on, and this is not to denigrate, but what Brady's done, it's impressive. That said, the Dolphins seem to get slightly better every week. That's a young team that's getting better, starting to feel each other out, and, um, you know, Tannehill's not such a bad little quarterback. So we'll see what the weather is. If it's too cold, then obviously. But if it's in the 30s, you know what? I think the Dolphins are going to pull the upset. Another snowball, perhaps. In one minute, Chuck, the second episode ever of Unscripted. Who do you have on the program? We're leading on John McCain. And as uh, some people know, this is not going to be your typical John McCain. Let's have him talk about all the issues of the day. The man is a fanatic, fanatical sports fan, but he's, but he's also uh, aggressive about using congressional powers to deal with sports, whether it's been on, on gaming issues 
on NF, the NFL blackout rules and is, is also trying to save boxing. He's an obsessive boxing fan, and of course, boxing is not what it used to be. Uh, and he's uh, he's not afraid to have, uh, and he wasn't afraid when he was a head of Commerce Committee. He's not afraid to use the powers of Congress to try to get involved with sports. So uh, that's going to be a lot of our conversation. And uh, Gino Toretta, former Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, so it's uh, and and the producer of a great movie back in the day about the NSA called Sneakers. That was the first time you probably ever heard the words NSA uttered in a movie. The NSA's been doing what they've been doing for for years. And this movie Sneakers knew about it back in the back in back in the late eighties. Absolutely. It's gonna be fun to talk about that. Chuck Todd, coming up in one minute. After the news, it's unscripted. Our new show on Sirius XM POTUS, channel one twenty four. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be able to call you a colleague and have you aboard. Thank you, Josh. 